I'm a card carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Sirius XM 111, Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. until 10 a.m., and it is also replayed three times throughout the week. I'm your host for the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, Professor Adi Weiner. I'm a collaborator with my colleagues at Wharton, Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen. We are professors at the Wharton School of Business here in Philadelphia, and I'm here today to break down the week's top takeaways. Our show this past week featured Cade Massey, who was out of town, so it was Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. I was also out of town, and the highlights were involving NFL contracts, NASCAR. We had a senior analyst from Pitt Row, Andrew Manis. He talked with our hosts about racing. And we also had another guest this past week, Jonathan Charks, um, who is also a writer for The Ringer, and he discussed basketball. So our first clip involves um, Eric discussing with Shane the giant contract that Antonio Brown just received. Let's go to the first clip. Antonio Brown signed the most expensive extension in the history of the NFL, four years, $68 million. Man, it's good to be a excellent wide receiver, well, isn't right. it? Right. I mean, he is an excellent wide receiver. People talk about he might be the best wide receiver we've seen since Randy Moss, right? So, I mean, if that is borne out through the extent, you know, through his deal, I mean, they're actually going to get a great deal out of that. Well, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about when he talks about Antonio Brown is because obviously we're, we talk about sports here on the show, but we talk about business, we talk about statistics. How can you measure the value of an Antonio Brown besides just his catches? Because people will say, like, he stretches the field. Yeah. Because of his speed and his ability, he can't be single-covered. So how, as a statistician, we've talked about this all the time, football's the hardest sport because yeah. of the interaction effects yep. between players. How could one even start to think about the football value of an Antonio Brown and what he does? Because he will, by definition, I don't even, I'm not even talking about practice. I'm talking about he will make other players around him better. Yeah. How can statisticians think about how to try to assess that? Well, I mean, within a particular season or a particular game, um, I mean, you can obviously look at, I mean, they do sort of tabulate the extent to which he draws double coverage, the extent to which other wide receivers or, or, or slot receivers are open when he's on the f- field versus not. So that's obviously something you can do with any in and one game. Across games or across seasons, you can look at the great thing we could that would help us study things like interactions is if the players kind of randomly, you know, were assigned to teams every year, right? They don't do that, but, you know, there have been other wide receivers that have gone to Pittsburgh and gone away from Pittsburgh. You could compare that. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's a lot of confounding even in that comparison because, exactly. you know, you've got Big Ben back there p- throwing passes and wherever they're going or whether they, wherever they've come from, they won't have Big Ben well, throwing them passes And as not well, just that, but, you think, of course, the Pittsburgh Steelers brass is saying who could we get in here that we could get for good value that would pair well with Antonio Brown That's they're right. not randomly yep. picking players they to play not. with him either they are not 
So let's just take this apart a little bit. The uh, highlight, of course, the text of this discussion was centered around Antonio Brown's enormous contract. So the question is, how do you evaluate a wide receiver? And that's the general problem in football as a whole, is that valuation is particularly difficult because it is not an independent set of replications the way you would see it in baseball. Everything that happens on a football field interacts with everything else. So even if a wide receiver essentially completes no passes, he could still be extremely valuable by drawing double, triple coverage and creating openings for other players. And that's what Eric was digging into. And Shane was highlighting the difficulties that you have in even using the data to estimate these features. There is, of course, new data coming online. We're seeing very detailed information about what happens in a given play that can tell you how many receivers are open. And essentially, you can look to see what a given receiver is doing and what those characteristics are and how they're measured in other portions of the field. Of course, it's very hard to do because you're not running experiments where you're popping in a receiver in one team and putting him in another. And everything interacts. That's a word that Eric used. Interacts meaning just because you have one player, he might also make an effect in other players. And things also correlate. So if you see terrific performance, say, and one team, and else it could be because of the quarterback, and it's hard to disentangle those effects. And that's what we statisticians are drawn to do and try to do as best as we can with the data. So now let's move on to another sport. Our interview this past week was with Andrew Manis. He's a senior analyst at Pitt Row, and he was talking about car racing. So here is the clip. Cars routinely run out of gas near the end of races because, you know, I guess they're making some gamble or wait. How surprising is it to you, given, as you just mentioned, the real time data that you guys have at Pit Row that I assume whether they hire you or some other firm, every car has to have this database of knowledge, real time streaming. Isn't it surprising to you that as many cars run out of gas as they do, or is there more variability than I'm thinking of? I think there is some variability for a few reasons. One is NASCAR does not carry particular telemetry data during races, so you don't know. As a team, you're not guessing, but you're you're making an educated guess on how much fuel you have remaining, so that's one issue. The second issue is who's your driver? Some drivers are much better at saving fuel and being more efficient on the throttle and, and on the brakes um, than other drivers, so that's another reason why cars are running out of fuel or not running out of fuel. And finally, it comes down to is is your crew, when you are filling up your car, are they getting as much fuel into the tank as possible? So it is very variable, and they're always cutting it close because you want a lighter car. Lighter lighter is faster, generally speaking. And so, yeah, they're, they're always cutting it close, and so it makes for some interesting ends to races. So that is one of the most fascinating components of car racing with essential fuel management. And fuel management is something that the elite teams do better and elite drivers do better. And it's everything kind of works against each other. So the more fuel you can put in the tank of a car, the longer you can go without having to make a pit stop. But the more fuel in the car, the heavier the car and the slower you go. So these essentially you have two things going against each other. So there are a lot of factors that determine these things. And these are the attributes that make good teams, make good drivers. And they're not perceptible in the ways that you would ordinarily think about a car racer. These are imperceptible attributes that matter enormously. So how much time you spend in the pit is a determining factor in winning races. And that's what we were discussing. And I think that's fascinating. I think we'll make developments over time as more data gets processed in this regard. So let's go to another clip with Andrew. 
not just at pit row, but in the field. Is the goal to obviously everybody wants to win the race, but are teams actively thinking about the points, uh, you know, the year end standings or to kind of win or go home? How are teams thinking about that and building that into their strategy? So that's a good question because this is completely new. So I don't think teams know exactly what they're trying to do. I think it's a moving target. But ultimately, you're trying to optimize the number of points you get in a race. And I was trying to choose my words carefully on that earlier. It, it, what we saw in the first race past weekend in Daytona is that you can finish 25th on the day and still take home maybe the fifth most points. And is and that so, because of the number, just for our listeners out there? There's a lot of intermediary there. points, yeah, is I it, guess. Is it both because of intermediary points and also because of number of laps leading the race? It's entirely because of intermediary points. NASCAR actually removed the bonus points for leading laps this season. There are two uh, early stages in races now. About one quarter of the way through the race, NASCAR will assign points to teams based on how they finish, and they'll assign more points to teams based on how they finish about halfway through the race. So there, and I believe the intention there is to create a little bit of extra excitement in uh, in races that last typically three to three and a half hours. But yeah, it definitely changes how crew chiefs will approach these races because all of a sudden you're not trying to optimize the finish in a race, you're trying to optimize the number of points that you take home. So this identifies, I think, a perfect opportunity for analytics. No longer is it simply the task to win or to finish high. The task is to win points, and those points accumulate over the course of a season, and points are awarded throughout the race. And so the drivers, the crews, they're trying to work out a system where the highest numbers of points are accumulated. And I think this is something that someone who gets a jump on this with data analysis will probably have opportunities and advantages that those who don't use data analysis won't necessarily accrue. So we love the change. I think it allows you to be interested in the race for the entire three and a half period as opposed to just the end. I think that's something that is a weakness in, in some of these racing sports that go on and on and on and nothing happens and all of a sudden somebody wins. And this is an opportunity to see lots more action take place throughout the three and a half hour race itself. All right, let's change gears to basketball. As I mentioned earlier, our guest for our second half of the program was Jonathan Charks, who is a writer for The Ringer. And that's terrific online uh, sports journalism. And let's hear what Jonathan had to say. Kevin Durant potentially could be out a month, two months, etc. When you first heard about the injury, were you thinking, wow, this is a major shift of power in basketball? Or are you thinking... No, they still got at least three or four other really great guys. How are you thinking about the injury? Oh, I mean, I think it's a pretty major shift if he's out for a significant amount of time, for sure. Just because, yeah, they'll still be great without Durant, but having Durant on that team made them so much better. I was always on the camp like the Warriors are probably going to win pretty easily the whole championship with their team healthy. If Durant's out for a lot of time, I feel like it's a lot more wide open. I mean, just for the simple fact that last year's team had Harrison Barnes and Andrew Bogut, now they don't. Losing Durant means they're much, they have much less depth. At the end of the day, there is only one basketball. So can an argument be made that in some sense, yeah, Durant has had a phenomenal season statistically, but how much drop-off, like if you know Clay Thompson and Steph Curry have to take five or seven more shots each, and maybe Draymond Green doesn't give away as much offense as he used to, and you know, is it really going to hurt him that much, do you think? Well, I think offensively they can't jack up Steph and Clay's usage rates, and they should be okay. 
It's just the rest of the team isn't as deep as they were last year. Like, they can go back to last year's team, but they don't have Bogut at the five. Their center spot is much deeper than they were last year. Now their power forward spot, there's no Harrison Barnes there. So when they go small, they go doll, and that's about it. We'll have to play Matt Barnes, play big minutes. It's just, I think, a lot of times with some stars go down, it's not so much the guys replacing the stars, it's the guys replacing the replacements. And I'll go and say just a lot, it would be a lot thinner across the board because they're playing much more bigger roles for the top three players. Well, there you have it. The context, of course, is uh, Kevin Durant's injury. The Warriors looked like they were cruising to be the best team in the NBA and win it all. It looks like things have changed a little bit. I mean, they've actually lost a few games since uh, he went down. By the time I've recorded this, um, they've certainly lost more games already than they lost all of last season. And the point that Jonathan is making is that it's a sort of a ripple-down effect. Durant comes out, and Eric announces, of course, well, well, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and Steph Curry are going to take over his uh, his time. But actually, the usage won't go up that much proportionally. You're going to have people subbing in for the subs, and that's where things are going to go south quickly. The, uh, the Warriors have given up a couple of their top bench players, their fourth and fifth players from last year and they don't have quite the depth that they did. And, of course, that was made up with Kevin Durant, but he's no longer playing. So things look a little bit more wide open now, I think, for the NBA going forward. I don't know whether Durant will make it back, but I haven't been following it too closely, and I don't think with injuries in general, you never really do know. There's a lot of you know hype about injuries that isn't necessarily that truthful. So we'll see going forward, and we'll all be keeping our eyes on. So let's go to our last clip of our post-game podcast, another clip with Jonathan, this talking about point guards. What were the major categories you used to evaluate point guards? I think, for one, it was probably who played in the most space. So, like, who is in the most advantageous position offensively to attack the basket? I think that it was, like, who is the best shooter? Who had the biggest impact on his teammates? Who played the best defense? Who who had the most efficient distribution of shots in terms of rim shots and three-pointers versus mid-range jumpers, who is the best passer. I believe those are the main categories. It hasn't been a while. Since yeah, no, the, the two things that stuck out to me that you mentioned uh, from the article, one is, of course, you know, the, their actual sort of shooting decision-making, which is, you know, you're either in close to the basket or you're at the three-point line, and, and you want why to really would you up, take any other? Yeah, why would you, avoiding these mid-range jumpers. So that was one thing that kind of, and I guess that's sort of the Maury Ball kind of what what we're now calling the Maury Ball strategy. Um, So that's certainly something that stuck out to me. The other one was, again, a sort of decision, the percentage of times they pass, basically. So... The discussion centered around new ways of evaluating the point guard. Things, of course, have changed a lot. The way the NBA is played, the game is much more open, much more three-point oriented in post position. There's no mid-range jumpers that people try to avoid, and that creates opportunity to measure the effectiveness of the point guard in different ways. And that's really what Shane was alluding to at the end, what he was calling Maury Ball. That whole strategy was invented by Daryl Maury. I'm not really sure whether he's the originator of that. I was actually reading an article in the Wall Street Journal, which was talking about the old Princeton coach, and he's been doing this, he's uh, in his 80s, so years and years ago, I remember uh, Princeton 
had this wide open three point strategy. And we used to describe it as slowing the game down. But now going back and looking at those strategies from the great Princeton teams of the 80s and 90s, and what they were doing was, yes, they were slowing the game down, but they were slowing the game down to make the game much more open so that they could take three point shots and get those layups. And that's what we're calling Mori Ball today. So let's think about what the actual origin of that is a little bit more carefully. But we'll be talking much more about basketball. We're heading into NCAA tournament season. And of course, we have baseball that's just starting to gear up. So we look forward to discussions into the future on all those topics. So that concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to listen to the entire show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and at the Apple Store under Podcasts. Don't forget, of course, to check out the show live on Sirius XM 111 every Wednesday morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. So join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports and enjoy your statistics.